Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy. This is podcast number 207. And in this episode, which was recorded at the Combined Sections meeting in Anaheim, California, way back in February, I was super busy. I did a lot of podcasting from there. Um, This episode is with Dr. John Childs. And in this episode, we talk about the DPT, or the Doctorate of Physical Therapy, education, and what they're doing at EIM to kind of shake up that educational model to hopefully make it a little more accessible, a little more affordable. It's definitely different than the traditional settings, and you'll find out all about why that is in the podcast. Um, We also talk about how technology is making a big difference in the DPT education, where we talk about the common criticisms that EIM has gotten from this sort of blended educational model, and how they're trying to bridge the gap between research and clinical practice. So it was a really nice interview, and I'm very, very, I'm waiting to you here at the end when I ask how people can get in touch with uh, Dr. Child. It's crazy. Um, anyway, I'm so glad that you tuned in. This is a really great conversation. Uh, It's an interesting program, and I hope this podcast gives everyone a better idea as to what they are doing, uh, what EIM is doing. But before we get to that, I just want to thank the sponsors for this week's podcast, and that is audible.com. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from. I listen to it all the time because I'm always bopping around the city seeing patients. So if you want to get a free download plus a free month's trial with Audible, Then, as a listener, you can go to the affiliate link, which is audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart. Go on, sign up. There's no obligation. You don't have to buy anything. It's free. So just go ahead and sign up for something that's free. You'll get a free download and a free month uh, using Audible to see if you like it. Okay, so thanks again to Audible for being a great sponsor to the podcast, and everyone enjoy this episode with Dr. John Childs. I am coming to you again live from CSM in Anaheim, California, and I'm sitting here with John Childs. So those of you who do not know John Childs, I'm going to let him kind of self-intro himself, and uh, then we're going to get into our conversation about EIM and kind of see where it goes. So go ahead, John. Hey, thanks, Karen. Appreciate your having me, and uh, welcome, everyone. If you're not in Anaheim, you're missing some just outstanding weather, great conference, uh, really enjoying some uh, afternoon runs, and uh, just uh, enjoying why many want to live in Southern California. So, uh, as Karen mentioned, my name is John Childs. Uh, I serve currently as the CEO of Evidence in Motion, uh, as well as a partner in uh, Confluent Health, um, which is a, uh, an organization that consists of EIM, uh, uh, about 75 clinics in a number of states around the country, as well as a company called Fit for Work uh, that uh, helps employers um, reduce their workers' compensation uh, costs. Uh, but day in and day out, um, um, I'm serving now as the um, uh, CEO at Evidence in Motion, which, if you don't know, is an educational business that provides uh, a number of certification, residency, and fellowship programs for uh, physical and now actually occupational therapists around the country. Oh, nice, nice. So let's talk a little bit more about Evidence in Motion, because as we were kind of talking before we went live, um, I said, you know, I wonder what it would be like, and I think you should do this. 
Um, I wonder what it would be like to sort of ask people, even here at, at CSM, do you know what, do you know, have you heard of evidence emotion and do you know what they do? So let's take it back even further to how evidence emotion started. So when I spoke to Steve Anderson uh, about the Graham sessions, there was a, a little bit of talk of the kind of the, the beginnings of, of evidence emotion. So can you kind of share the story and how it started? Yeah, you bet. So uh, EIM originally was really born out of my uh, experience as a PhD student at the University of uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, I had the real privilege of uh, going through a world-class PhD program with some of the best, you know, scientists and mentors that, you know, any PhD student in the physical therapy world could ask for, folks like Tony DeLito, Julie Fritz, and uh, a number of other, um, you know, very uh, notable faculty and, and really got exposed to how to do uh, level one grant-funded research. And as part of that experience, was privileged to participate in a number of trials, publish, uh, and really get exposed to um, uh, a real, doing real cutting-edge clinical research. The, the downside, if you will, is that as an outsider looking in, a lot of that evidence, as quality as that evidence may be, there's this gap between what gets published and what actually gets done in practice. So EIM, at the end of the day, was born out of a desire to help clinicians take current evidence and really translate it into clinical practice. So how do you take it from the 30,000-foot ivory tower view to the 15,000-foot to the real clinic level where therapists are dealing with, um, you know, uh, less than optimal um, sort of, it's, it's not a laboratory where you can optimize, you know, patients are late and there's compliance issues and payer-related issues. So how do you really incorporate evidence into real-time practice? And so EIM was born out of that experience wanting to help clinicians uh, translate evidence into practice. And so when you mentioned the Graham session, the Graham sessions actually started a, a number of years after EIM was originally formed, uh, but it is really interesting that one of our programs, our executive program in private practice management, uh, was actually um, a, a conversation, a starter, if you will. That conversation started at the Graham session, and from that, um, we evolved our uh, what is now known as our executive program in, in private practice management. Yeah, and I think you know, again, before we were talk, before we went on the air, we were sort of talking about. Um, the Graham sessions a little bit and and does something really come out of this these talks because it's been they're going on nine years now and so I think that this is a really great example of what can happen when you get a group of kind of forward thinkers together and it, trying to do something for the betterment of the profession and and I feel like that's kind of what came out of that Graham sessions for you guys if I don't know maybe I'm wrong yeah, no, that's right. And, uh, you know, I vividly remember having attended the, the first Graham sessions and a number of the other uh, subsequent Graham sessions. You know, it's always prided itself on being sort of a think tank, if you will, where there's not a goal to have uh, sort of objective one, two, three, four, project one, two, three, four that's going to come from that. But nonetheless, many of the ideas that have percolated around the Graham sessions over the last number of years, at least from my perspective, have either directly or indirectly contributed to a number of sort of, you know, new ideas sort of um, taking taking root and, and things actually happening. And at least from the from EIM's perspective, 
the executive program in private practice management uh, was was one of those. Um, I remember probably three years ago at the Graham session, um, there was a big focus around entry level DPT education and how private practice can partner with um, academic programs. And as part of that Graham session, um, we had a lot of discussion around blended learning and you know is three years the optimal length for DPT education. Uh, and I, um, you know, had the opportunity to sort of share a vision that we've had at EIM for a number of years to take entry-level education and make it an accelerated model that goes from three years to two years. And so, you know, now we've come full circle now in 2015 and 16, having actually seen that program become developed. And yet some of the earliest sorts of of comments that might be on record, nothing of course on the Graham session, at the Graham session is on record, but if you were at that Graham session, um, that's some of the earliest uh, times where that concept was being sort of uh, talked about. And so um, it's, it is difficult to, to uh, take the agenda at a Graham session and tie it to results, but at least I'm convinced, having been there for a number of years, mm -hmm. that it's actually served more of that uh, purpose than, than not. Right, and let's let's talk a moment about uh, since you just brought it up that sort of blended learning and that accelerated program because one of the big issues with physical therapy school is obviously going to the doctoring profession. So it went from a, a four-year program when it was you got your bachelor's to a five-year master's to now it's seven years uh, with your doctorate. So you're doing your undergrad and then doing your three years of PT school. And one of the biggest things that I see, and I'm sure you do as well on social media and things like that, is, is the cost, the amount of loans that you're strapped with afterwards. Um, and so can you talk a little bit more about the program that you guys have developed and did, was that developed with that in mind? Um, and how are you able to kind of get this accelerated program to have the same experience, both academic and clinical, in a shorter amount of time? Yeah, very, very fair question. So at the, at the heart of the sort of um, rationale for the blended learning DPT program that we're starting to build, at the heart of that is a desire to really see clinical education in entry-level DPT education evolve. So if you look back over time, when we shifted to the DPT from the masters, um, institutions of higher education that had DPT programs invested a lot of resources and energy into upgrading the didactic curriculum. Yet, clinical education has not been touched in 50 years. There's nothing fundamentally different about clinical education in the DPT than there was with the master's degree, than there was with the bachelor's degree. It's really the same sort of, um, it's highly variable. You have clinical sites, that are very loosely connected oftentimes with academic programs. It's in a sort of one-on-one -on -one model where, and I'll put my academic hat on, when we send students out to sites, we sort of hope and pray that they learn something. But it's very um, um, uh, sort of catch what you can, if you will. Uh, there's, no there's very little to no structure. There's no curriculum. And so part of our desire at the, on the EIM side was to help um, uh, standardize and inculcate a curriculum within clinical education so that it could evolve in a similar way as the didactic curriculum uh, had done and ultimately obviously to improve you know uh, to improve outcomes uh, you know, with with PTs it's like we're all about 
you know, we want to, we're this doctoring profession that we want to be collaborative and we want to have that seat at the table. And yet when we do our clinicals, we're all about more being isolated and being one-on-one -on -one instead of really having this team approach. And so now having different clinical structures, like maybe having a two-on-one or a four, like an ice structure or a two-on-or four-on-one structure where you're learning collaboratively with your peers alongside your clinical instructor and, and really having to, to think a little bit more, I guess, versus yeah. being spoon-fed. Yeah, no, sense? no, it makes a lot of sense. And that's really fundamental um, in the clinical education model that we've built into our DPT program. And that is that rather than sending students out to isolated sites, mm -hmm. disconnected from their peers mm -hmm. that are in other clinical sites, students are being paired together in groups because obviously the team-based learning concept you know students will learn as much or more from each other than they will from their CI mm -hmm. and technology through blended learning allows us to connect those students together in both synchronous and asynchronous ways over the course of every week of clinical education so that there's structure and curriculum in the clinical education um, phase of the educational program in the same way that in the didactic phase students have a syllabi there's readings mm -hmm. they know what to prepare for it's very predictable in the clinical education um, model that we currently have largely it's totally unpredictable um, and you're sort of at the whim of whatever patient happens to sort of walk through the or, door or you're at the whim of whoever that CI is so just think, you, you send students out, some people may have a, a, an amazing clinical experience, and another student may have a not so great clinical experience, and that may be because of the facility, the CI, or what have you, but I just think what you're saying about having a more standardized clinical experience would mean that everyone's getting the same type of, of clinical experience or the same type of clinical education, because then you're, you end up graduating some students who had really great experience and others had like really crappy experiences and that's not fun. Yeah, no, if it's you're very on the crappy side. Very <laughs> fair to say and even in defense of the best CIs that are out there, it's a pretty weighty thing. Mm -hmm. If I'm a, a CI, even a quality CI and a student, an individual student's experience over 8 weeks, 12 weeks, whatever the length of the clinical education is is entirely dependent upon me. Mm -hmm. There's there's no one individual that owns the universe of knowledge and skill set to communicate. And so what we want to try to do is bring together um, both the clinical faculty and the students into the synchronous and asynchronous learning environments where now my experience as a student is dependent not just on my CI, but it's dependent upon the, my classmates who may be teamed with me at my site, as well as the rest of my peers that I'm connected with, as well as the clinical faculty across this sort of entire network, if yeah. you will. Yeah, yeah, and it just, I mean, I know I find that that group learning, it's just so much more valuable, and I, and I feel like you get a better, a greater sense of being part of a profession and being part of, like, a group of people who are maybe as passionate as you are about helping patients and learning. And, and like you said, you can learn a lot from your fellow students as, as you can learn from your CI. And so how are you guys, what, what technology are you using? Because you mentioned earlier, you know, you now have sort of better technology to kind of make this happen. So let's sort of 
take off our clinical hat and put on the tech hat. So what type of tech stuff are you using? Well, let me back up just a little bit, if you don't mind, yeah. and just kind of, um, you know, so if you, if you want to change clinical education, you obviously have to have willing academic programs that really want to be part of um, some element of reform. Mm -hmm. And, and there are certainly a number of, of DPT programs that are real front runners in sort of evolving. Um, we, we think where the future's going is longer and longer clinical internships yes. into yes. post-professional residencies. Mm -hmm. But still, the number of programs that are moving in that direction at any pace, it's a, it's a few number of programs. There's still a lot of resistance in tradi traditional academics to evolve their curriculum. Why do you think that is? is well, it it's status quo. You know, if yeah. you've got, you know, 700 applicants applying for 50 seats in an mm -hmm. academic program and they're all graduating and passing the licensure exam and being employed, right, there's just sort of this. Where are the incentives yeah, to change? Yeah, where are the incentives to change? There's not this recognition that there's really a need. Mm -hmm. And so our experience, we first tried to really partner with academic programs and mm -hmm. help provide them access to a lot of the clinics that we work with mm -hmm. on the EIM side. Mm -hmm. So on the EIM side, most of our history over the last 10 years has been partnering with multi-site um, mm -hmm. practices, um, hospital-based, private practices, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you're, if you're wanting to start an entry-level DPT program, the rate-limiting factor, there's really two. You can't recruit faculty and you can't recruit clinical sites. That Those are the bottlenecks. Well, those happen to be the very sort of things that we can do pretty mm -hmm. well on mm -hmm. the on the EIM side. So my point in saying all that, and, I'm, and I'll get to the technology yeah. piece in just a moment, is we found that trying to partner with existing three-year traditional academic programs, it was it's kind of like pulling teeth, right? Because you know you're steering a moving ship in an mm -hmm. institution that may or may not really buy off on the vision that you're sharing. And so mm -hmm. ultimately, that's when we said, you know, we really need a partner that we're connected with really closely at the hip in building a truly innovative two-year blended model DPT mm -hmm. program. Mm -hmm. And so um, in thinking about that model, so, and again, just backing up, the next big thing we think in DPT education is residency. So, we, you know, the DPT is old news. We're all doctorally prepared um, entry-level clinicians. Where the opportunity is in the next phase, we think, is entry-level or is residency post-licensure. The problem with that is there's no way in a three-year brick-and-mortar, $120,000 or more tuition program that the vast majority of graduates can go on to residency. It sounds like a great idea, but the economics mm -hmm. of it don't work. Right. So that's why we built, in part, the two-year accelerated model is because now we can have the entry-level DPT awarded after two years, mm -hmm. the therapist sits for licensure, and now rather than paying the institution tuition in year three, the therapist is actually earning an income going through a post-licensure residency program. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it, mm -hmm. in three years, you now get entry-level DBT, you get residency board certification at a cost that might be half of what mm. a brick-and-mortar three-year DPT alone might be. Mm -hmm. And so the way we did that is with yeah, blended so learning, a, this and this is, is where this is it gets... This is the big thing. Yeah, so this it is, sounds great, but how did you Yeah, do it? so this is where it gets to sort of the technology side. And, you know, look, this is 2015-16. You know, I remember when we first started doing online learning uh, at EIM back in 2004 and five. You know, bandwidth was always an issue, storage was always an issue, oh, it was expensive, yeah, and it was clunky, you get disconnected. Yeah. 
you know, well, those days are completely yeah, over. Yeah, now you can do uh, it they're, on they're your phone. You can do it on your phone. <laughs> Um, and you know, let's let's face it. Students, my my own kids are in online um, education in their high schools, and they mm -hmm. they're seeing it more and more in college. And students, the millennials in particular, they want to be able to learn anytime, anywhere, yep. on any device. Yep. Yep. And with blended learning, we can create synchronous and asynchronous classroom sessions that mimic as closely, more closely than you might imagine the look and feel and culture of an in-class mm -hmm. setting. Um, and, you know, and I almost hesitate to use the word online because the, on, the word online conjures up sometimes negative connotations. It's, mm. it's students sitting in their, you know, in their pajamas, passively watching videos, right. you know, just not really interacting. Well, when we say blended learning, these are synchronous and asynchronous sessions. Our, our students are connecting live in virtual classrooms, high definition, lots of collaboration. Uh, the tools are such, we use a platform called Moodle, which is our learning management system, okay. and a number of different plugins, like for example, Blackboard Collaborate oh, sure, is, a, yeah. is, a, is a plug-in to Moodle that allows our students to connect in a virtual classrooms. Mm -hmm. The faculty can break those that classroom into, um, you know, five groups of ten students who are now in working groups of their own with mm -hmm. their own whiteboard mm -hmm. and their own mm -hmm. sort of bandwidth that's mm -hmm. you know siloed off from the other groups and then when the faculty's ready you know you can bring those bring students back together, together. That's cool. and so students are showing up for classes in blended learning models just like they're showing up for classes in brick a brick-and-mortar setting they just may be living in 30 different states right. around the country doing that. And now, and obviously that's one of the ways to keep the cost down, is because you're not in that brick and mortar space. Sure. So you can kind of keep the yeah, cost there's down really from two, that end of it. Yeah, so there's, I would think. You know, no, absolutely. There's really two sort of, I would call, points of efficiencies, if you mm -hmm. will. The, the, big, the nice. biggest one is, like the, the biggest one is two years of tuition of relative to three. I mean, yeah. you're, you're literally, you know, lopping tuition off by a third just by having an accelerated model. Mm -hmm. Because here's the, the dirty secret in entry-level DBT education is students in year three are paying premium tuition to, not be to a university. To not be at the university. When the clinical education is yeah. happening in the clinic. And yeah. the clinicians get nothing out of that. Yeah. And so yeah. this really takes away that perverse incentive, if you will, mm -hmm. um, because um, the vast majority of the clinical education in a post-professional residency model is happening after the student graduates from their entry-level, um, you know, DPT yeah. program. Yeah, of course. Of course. And I, you know, I did my, I did it, my DPT, I did a transitional DPT in two years on, I don't, now I don't want to say online. Um, outside of a traditional brick and mortar sure. um, structure and we had the same thing we would have we would come together as groups you had like the blackboard uh, and, and all this other stuff but um, I found I got a very I've, I enjoyed it like I found I got a, I got a great I made great connections with the other people in the class um, and a great education and then we would come to campus once a semester to have a weekend of it together learning with, yeah. with the whole class. But I did not feel like it took away, because I'm, I'm sure some of the criticisms you may get is it takes away from the camaraderie of the class. Um, how can you really learn if you're, and I'm just, I'm throwing these out, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You don't have the camaraderie of the class, you don't get to know your teachers, you don't get to know your classmates. Um, 
it is what you put into it. People can coast by without doing the quote unquote work, which believe me, you can't because if you don't do the work, it's just like any other, you're, you're not going to pass. Right. Um, but have you heard these criticisms? And if so, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've certainly heard and responded to, you know, all those sort of various criticisms. Um, you know, our students are as closely connected in terms of their culture, if not more so, through this model than they would be in a brick and mortar. They're more connected with mm -hmm. their faculty. I mean, if you think about it, even in a traditional brick and mortar program, most faculty are not in their physical offices these days, right? right. And, and students, even if the faculty member is literally down the hall, students are texting them and emailing them. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. yeah, so, so this, this notion that in a brick and mortar program, students are just constantly in the presence of faculty and in their office for office hours is it's really kind of a notion of the past mm -hmm. students are even in brick and mortar programs using technology to connect far <clears throat> more than they are going to physical offices meeting with faculty mm -hmm. um, so that's you know that's number one um, the other thing i would say to that is you know in a blended model program we're in a hands-on profession so mm -hmm. let's not Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's not forget the fact mm -hmm. that, you know, our students, yes, may be off campus for the didactic phase, but they are together, call it, you know, five, six times a year for 14 to 16 days of intensive immersion lab experiences. Mm -hmm. So when mm -hmm. our students are on campus for the labs, they're in labs eight, nine hours a day. They are literally, in some cases, living together, renting big Airbnb right. houses for two weeks. And, you know, so, you know, this, this whole notion about culture and camaraderie, I mm -hmm. mean, our, our, you know, I, in fact, if anything, we, we sort of, you know, we worry about too much camaraderie <laughs> happening uh, in our immersion lab experiences because you're really in it mm -hmm. uh, very um, in-depth. I mean, it's, a, it's a hard, intense. it's intense, it's, yeah. a, it's a hard two weeks. Yeah. And of course, one of the criticisms you get from that is, is oh, aren't you working these students so hard? They're on their feet from you know seven o'clock in the morning until seven mm -hmm. o'clock at night, mm -hmm. all day labs. And of course, my response is that's exactly what happens in the clinic. Yeah. And you know, we really want to be preparing our students for that busy clinical, that busy, uh, that busy pace that they're mm -hmm. going to feel when they get out in the clinic. And mm -hmm. so. By, by doing these immersion labs, it's a lot like, call it, you know, learning a, a language in a foreign, when you immerse mm -hmm. yourself, you get a lot more repetition and yeah. the skill acquisition phase of it, we find is, is, is it happens faster and, and you know, more, more permanent, if you will, uh, learning. Cool, so now have you graduated a class? We have not. So we enrolled our uh, first class. This, this uh, first program is with uh, South College, they're based out mm -hmm. of Knoxville, Tennessee. Okay. And uh, started 65 students uh, this past summer, the summer of 2015. So we, we have what is called candidacy status now at South. And uh, what that has allowed our students uh, to start in the first cohort. That first cohort will graduate in the summer of 2017. So it's a okay. two-year uh, program. And, excuse me. So we hope to achieve uh, a full accreditation um, uh, as they near their, their right. point of graduation. Right, right, right. And I mean, that's probably a whole other can of worms to open, but if you can just speak to the difficulty of doing that. Sure. Just, you don't have to go into too in-depth, because like right. I said, that's a whole other, like you said, you've yeah. been here for at CSM for days doing, sure. doing yeah. this stuff, but. 
Well, suffice it to say, when you do anything different, right, you, you know, especially in the educational world, mm -hmm. when you're really disrupting kind of the traditional model, um, you're going to have your critics. I mean, and, and, you know, although on the one hand, it's no one likes to hear criticism, if you're willing to listen and learn, even from your staunchest critics, um, you can use that to improve, right? There's always holes, there's always gaps, there's always blind spots in any idea. And, you know, we try to take the, the adage of listening to our critics more than, you know, shutting them down Smart. because we want to understand where those perspectives are. And so, uh, you know, getting the program off the ground uh, because it's a two-year blended model, uh, we certainly hit a number of different kind of bumps along the way. Is this going to work? Is it not going to work? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I think there's a recognition throughout the educational community that whether you call it online learning, blended learning, uh, we're, we're, it's here to stay. This, this idea of blended model education is not a, um, you know, so innovative concept now that we're sort of experimenting with it. Right. It, is, it, is, it is throughout a lot of higher education, online MBA programs and of a course. number of other yeah. programs, and it's just healthcare education tends to kind of lag behind. I mean, you look, you look at even some of the most prestigious institutions in the country, Yale, for example, is, is starting a hybrid blended model physician assistant program. Yes. So, you know, these, these innovative kind of concepts don't exist just in, um, you know, certain segments of higher ed. They're being adopted now throughout all of higher education, including the Ivy Leagues. And mm -hmm. so we just think it's time to push the envelope, if you will, of what the future of DPT education might look like. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's it's certainly very appealing in, in a number of ways because if you are even a non-traditional student or maybe you have a family um, and, and you don't want to, you know, have to pick up and, and uproot your family for a couple of years. I mean, I think this is very appealing to that to that set of people, you know, to, to your quote-unquote non-traditional students. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, that's one of the most rewarding uh, um, aspects of seeing this model evolve is just what you said. So, you know, take a second career mom that lives in a rural area that really has a dream of going back to PT school her only option is to pick up her family and move to another program and nearby, and that's an not possible. Yeah. And so you're really limited on what your options are. And so, yeah. wow, being able to enroll very capable adult learner, very strong applicant, mm -hmm. you know, second career kinds of folks or, or, or first career kinds of folks mm -hmm. that just live in a rural area where there is mm -hmm. no DPT program mm -hmm. is, is, is really rewarding to see them be able to achieve their, their, their sort of their dreams. Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, you know, people talk about, you know, do we have too many, you know, we, we have a lot of developing DPT programs. So there's a general sort of resistance in the educational community. There's, if, if you had to sort of, you know, encapsulate it, there, there's sort of an anti-new DPT program sentiment because we have a lot of developing programs um, and it is diluting, right, the faculty pool. Mm, Everyone's competing it. for the same clinical yeah. sites. And our sort of response to that is, yes, we, we actually agree that there are probably too many DPT programs and our solution in part is to start a few more DPT programs <laughs> but to do so in a blended model that mm -hmm. has the potential to scale mm -hmm. where we can get much more efficient faculty student ratios mm -hmm. use common curriculum share resources get institutions cooperating together and oh and share clinical sites which yeah. ultimately we think will help 
you know, um, um, squelch, if you will, some of the dynamics we have now with, you know, all these shortages of faculty and clinical mm -hmm. sites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, because our, our mindset is what is driving the shortage of faculty and clinical sites are very small brick-and-mortar-based programs that may recruit only 30 students a year, but they'll have seven faculty. Um, which is just not a sustainable mm -hmm. model mm -hmm. uh, unless we can just, you know, train so many more doctorally prepared faculty than sure, we are now. Sure, Yeah, I mean, it's such a, a complicated, um, I think it's a very complicated issue as it, just DPT education in general, and there's so many options and so many different ways to go, but I think that you guys are, are certainly headed in, the, in a in definitely a more interesting direction. Um, because it allows for m more participation almost. I don't know that sounds crazy because it's like you said you're not in the classroom at, at one time all the time but I think it it sounds to me like it allows for more participation from everyone involved whether it be the clinical site, the, the clinical instructor, the student, and the professor. Yeah, no that's exactly right. We really envision a program where the clinical faculty have the same sort of status, if you will, as the core kind of mm -hmm. academic faculty. You know, cool. uh, you know, we, we really underestimate the value of clinical faculty, yeah. clinical instructors. I mean, they, they, they deliver, in my view, the most important part of the entire DPT educational experience, and yet so little focus is, uh, is put towards, um, you know, so little emphasis is put on uh, the, the quality management around clinical education. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got a couple minutes left, so I want to talk about what are you doing next? Because you're a big researcher, so can you give us a little insight into maybe what you're researching and what you're looking at next? Sure, yeah. Well, I started off doing a lot of clinical trials and those sorts of things and had a terrific experience doing that. Over the last few years, I've really shifted around doing more sort of health services uh, kinds of research, uh, trying to work on, you know, the process of care. Uh, you know, the days of sort of assessing is treatment A better than treatment B. Those are those are important, but mm -hmm. you know, really we now have large claims databases, big data, we have the ability to tease out um, in big data sets how to optimize the process of care. Where does a patient show up at the you know at the right place at the right mm -hmm. time, right provider to optimize costs and outcomes. And so mm -hmm. health services research is on the research side has been more of, of where my focus has been cool. in the academic world. You got anything publishing soon? Um, you know, there's always stuff that's percolating. Uh -huh. uh, nothing uh, 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 just off the nothing offhand that comes to mind. There's yeah, but there's always stuff that's in review, and then uh, yeah, there's uh, always something coming. That's awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time out at CSM and sitting down and chatting. And where can people find more about you and find more about EIM's programs? You bet. Well, you can always reach us at EIM at www.evidenceinmotion.com. And um, I'm the always rebranded. Yep, and we've got our new uh, brand out there that's uh, designed to appeal to that millennial sort of mm -hmm. generation uh, that we're reaching on the entry level side. Uh, and my uh, cell phone, I'll throw it out there: two one zero three six four seven four one zero. I always joke, not enough students reach out and just say, "Hey, I'm happy to chat, connect," uh, or email John J O H N at e i m p t dot com. Great. Well, thank you so much, and I can't believe you gave out your cell phone number. That is a brave move. Um, thanks so much for, for uh, sitting down at CSM, and everyone, thanks so much uh, for listening. And if you're at 
CSM. I hope you're having a great time, and like John said, enjoying Southern California weather. Um, and if not, hopefully you'll be able to make it next year when it's in San Antonio. It's in our it's home in your turf. Hometown. Yeah, yeah, which it's is outstanding. So look forward to uh, seeing everybody next year. Well, a big thanks to Dr. John Childs. And can, can you believe he gave out his cell phone number to people? So I guess you can call him and voice your opinion. But I would also love to hear your opinion. So if you're enjoying the podcast, I would love for you to leave a review or a rating on iTunes. That would be awesome. And if you have any questions or you want to uh, have any suggestions for me for the show or you want to talk about this episode in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Karen Litzy NYC. Or you can also go to the Facebook page, which is Healthy, Wealthy, Smart on Facebook. So thanks so much for listening, everyone. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.